The box office is buzzing at the National Theatre in the 1980s. Peter Hall, the theatre's director, is contemplating a production of Antony and Cleopatra. So is Terry Hands, his opposite number at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Separately, they both ask Judy Dench to play Cleopatra. She rather lets her enthusiasm run away with her. I was in dreadful trouble about it. That's when I started not to sleep. I said yes to two productions. I said one at the RSC and one here. And I let them go on thinking I was going to do it. But Peter actually had asked me first, though it was at a party. <laughs> it wasn't until I was in the West End that I had to say to Terry Hands and to Peter, you've got to come and see me, you've got something terrible to tell you. I've gone very, very clammy now, even thinking about it. Anyway, I had to let them sort it out. Peter Hall won. Judy Dench played Cleopatra opposite Anthony Hopkins on the national stage, not with the RSC. What audiences see and hear is often very different from what was originally planned. Ploughing through the National's archives for a book I've been writing about its history, I came across dozens of casting near misses. I'm Daniel Rosenthal. And in this look back at 50 years of the National Theatre for BBC Radio 4 Extra, I'm pulling out some stories, plays and songs from its stages. You pursued your literary career after the war? Oh, yes. So did I. I believe you've done rather well. Oh, quite well, yes. Past my best now. John Gielgud and Ralph Richardson in Harold Pinter's No Man's Land, which played first at the Old Vic in 1975 and then at the Littleton Theatre on the South Bank. By 1976, the National had moved from the Vic to its huge concrete home beside Waterloo Bridge. The new building housed several theatres, the epic open-stage Olivier, seating more than 1,100, and the more conventional proscenium arch Littleton, with 890 seats. So what is Michael Billington talking about? It's an underground theatre. It literally, as well as metaphorically, holds up the Olivier. It's situated in a basement with a separate entrance down the side of the building. It's in fact a small, some say slightly claustrophobic, black box. Drama critic Michael Billington on Theatre Call in 1977. He's describing the newly opened studio theatre, the Cotterslow, or Cotslow, as they call it in-house. Well, Ian McIntosh, technical consultant of the National Theatre at the Cotterslow, describes it in more detail. Well, the colour uh, is, is controversial. It's black. That's the choice of the architect and of the National Theatre Company. I would hasten to add you can paint it any colour you like because this is a very small building. You could get up on a pair of stepladders and paint it brown tomorrow or red, and I should think it's quite likely that designers will treat it as a, an empty slate which they can repaint as, as situation demands. Um, the form of the building is a courtyard. There's nothing new about that. Indeed, one would hope that this is both an ancient form and a forward-looking form. The most obvious um, simplification will be to take all the seats away at the lower level and have a perambulating theatre I think, and I hope, that the strength of the design um, is that we don't really quite know how people are going to use it. Their problem is how to create the mystery. Well, at the moment, that mystery is being created by Illuminatus, which has been adapted by Ken Campbell and Chris Langham from the work of two American writers, Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. And it's presented by something that calls itself the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool. I couldn't begin to summarise the plot, but it's roughly to do with a secret society called the Illuminati that is dedicated to messing up international politics. For example, it's been behind every assassination you can think of, including that of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King. 
And the show also includes a rock musical, a puppet play, a satanic mass, a singing dolphin, and a whole lot of sex. And in all this, Chris Langham plays an underground journalist who is captured by an anarchist superhero called Hagbard Chalene, who fights organisations from a golden gigantic submarine. And I suppose the obvious first question to put is what it was in these books that really made you want to adapt them? Not being able to understand them. <laughs> Ken Campbell. Yes, that's exactly it. They were, they were so enormously full of just stuff that I didn't know whether it was uh, true or not that uh, it was obviously going to take up uh, at least a year of my time unravelling it anyway. So the best thing was to, uh, you know, combine it with uh, trying to make a few bob out of it at the same time in order to, in order to fund my researches into Sham Wilson's book. Illuminatus, apart from being an anarchic choice as the Cottesloe's first show, was something of an experiment. It was also a test of the audience's endurance, as Ian McIntosh noted at the time. What I found exciting when the theatre opened with this extraordinary eight-and-a-half-hour show, the audience started to behave after a few hours in a very unselfconscious, natural way. People went in and out to the bar, brought their beer back, um, even saw some people smoking, which they shouldn't have done, and um, the audience, just like the actors, um, can treat the building as they choose. This easy-come, easy-go attitude wasn't easy to achieve, as I heard from Ken Campbell when we sat and spoke on the terrace of an Essex pub 30 years later. This was extraordinary. There's a guy called Mike Hurst, something of a circus man. He had performing pigs, and uh, it always looked like he'd just come out of a haystack. He was to do my lighting, and there was an extraordinary meeting, technical meeting, but Mike completely held his own at it and asked the relevant questions and things like that. Oh, I shall be really quite, and we really need to do that. You know what I mean? He knew the arcane lingo. And Mike Hurst was going for intricate, up the nose lighting. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you know what I mean? Like he's lighting a film. And this is a umpteen hour long opus. <laughs> boom, boom, you know what I mean? And people like to have marks. But a um, young man called Steve was in charge of the lighting console, a new computerised one. And we came to the point, well, not, not even halfway through the work, when Steve says, that's it, Mike. He said, there's only a hundred memories in this thing and we got there. And Mike said, do you know how to use it manually, Steve? No, said Steve. Mike said, can you break everyone for three hours? while I instruct Steve in the manual use of his equipment. Not long after Illuminatus lit up the Cottesloe, director Bill Bryden formed his Cottesloe company of actors. Over the next few years, they staged a string of distinctive, sold-out productions, which included adaptations of Flora Thompson's bucolic tales of rural Oxfordshire in the 1870s, Lark Rise to Candleford. After the Jubilee, nothing ever seemed quite the same. The old rector died, and the farmer retired, and machines put people out of work. Early in the 90s, some measure of relief came, for then the weekly wage was raised to 15 shillings. But rise in prices and new requirements soon absorbed this rise. 
and it took a world war to obtain anything like a living wage. To the glory of God, in memory of those from this parish whose lives have been given in defence of their country and in the cause of right and justice in the Great War 1914-1918 A.D. J. Blaby, W. Blaby, E. A. V. Blenko, A. D. Cross, L. J. Cross, H. Farrer, S. Gaskin, H. Harris, E. Peveril, W. Peveril, E. Timms. E. Timms? That's me, Hush Edmund. Their name liveth forevermore. In the Cottesloe, Lark Rise was not the cosy costume drama it would later become on Sunday night telly. It had credible folk roots, courtesy of the Albion Band, which included Ashley Hutchings, of Fairport Convention fame, and Martin Carthy. It also made use of the Cottesloe's perambulating capabilities and was performed amongst the people. At one point, members of the audience even joined the actors in a circle dance. What audiences don't see at the National is just as important as what they do. I came to understand that in the company of former National Theatre stage manager, Rosie Beattie, who was kind enough to help me navigate the building's tricky interior geography. And this brings us to... <laughs> Good question. Front of house, everyone sees the foyers, the bookshop, bars and restaurants, and then, of course, the theatres. Come on, I've been up here for years. Behind them are offices, dressing rooms, rehearsal spaces and workshops, reached through a combination of windowless corridors and dizzying staircases. This is stairwell 14. <laughs> Gives a sense of the scale of the building. It's a five-acre site. There's a five-storey drop beneath the Olivier stage. Everywhere you walk, yellow lines mark the routes which must be kept clear at all times, for safety reasons. We won't go into the dimmer room, it's just dangerous. Okay. If you turn right out of a stairwell on the ground floor, there's a room that some theatre-goers might recognise, even if they've never been in it. Now, if you think about having seen um, Alan Bennett's play... The set for The Habit of Art is a recreation. Of a rehearsal run. Yeah. For any of us who've worked here, it's the strangest feeling, walking into the theatre and thinking you're weird. in the rehearsal yeah, run. <laughs> Alan Bennett's play, The Habit of Art, is set in a National Theatre rehearsal room. So designer Bob Crowley put a replica of the real rehearsal room too on the stage of the Littleton. In the 1980s, we got a glimpse of what goes on at rehearsal when a BBC team came to the South Bank to record a programme, a day in the life of the National Theatre. Oh, you can sit there calmly eating puppets when we are in this horrible trouble I can't make out. You seem to me to be perfectly heartless. Well, I can't eat puppets in an agitated manner. Peter Hall was directing The Importance of Being Earnest with Martin Jarvis, Nigel Havers 
and making her national theatre debut, Zoe Wanamaker. My first impressions of people are never wrong. It's just one thing underlying that dialogue occurs to me, Zoe, yeah. is that Cecily Cardew does not help you at all, does it? I mean, if, it, if she said, my name is Cecily Worthing, it might be a, a cousin or a niece. But this, but this is, Christ, she is an unattached young girl. Mm. I hate your guts. Who are you? That's why I'm saying I like you so, so much. So already on the dif already already the already top. already. Yeah. That was marvelous. That beat. Mm. That's good. I I'm still not, don't like the entrance. Like, do don't like the entrance. Many big names have entered and exited at the National. Peter Hall explained how casting worked rather defensively to Brian Matthew in 1980 on Radio 2's arts magazine Round Midnight. I'm in no sense running a star theatre. I do not choose plays because they are star vehicles. Uh, we do not have star billing here. It's alphabetical order for everybody. There are no star salaries here. It's not like the West End. And I think what is important above the, the star is the company feeling. And what we search for all the time is the star actor who likes to be a member of the company. I think the fact that at this moment, as we talk, Sir Ralph Richardson, Paul Schofield, Felicity Kendall, mm. Warren Mitchell are in this building. Yes. I mean, to name only mm. a few, uh, gives uh, an electricity to the place which gives energy and vaults to the whole repertoire. That's a very comprehensive answer, Sir Peter. Do you audition people or do individual producers audition them? Are they chosen on their past records or what happens? Um, all the things you've just said. Oh. <laughs> Gillian Diamond. National Theatre Casting Director in the 1980s. Up until about four or five years ago, we did regularly hold auditions. But the dissatisfaction from the actor's point of view, and therefore from our point of view, we felt that we weren't actually being able to tell anything from somebody being Romeo at 10 o'clock in the morning, making love to a chair. And we actually began to feel it was a very old-fashioned, silly way of going about things. So what we do now is, if there's anything going in a play, we collect together all the people who may be even remotely right for that one part that's going. It's a very difficult thing for an actor to commit himself here for what may be 18 months. And more often than not, we can't tell him exactly what he's going to be doing in the next play and the one after that. So in the main, they come attached to one production and then wait and see what's happening in the next. I mean, not everybody is lucky enough to have things that use them to the full. That is inevitable in a company of this size and complexity. Sometimes you've got exactly what you want, other times you're making do and, as it were, working your passage to some extent. There's a, there's a lot that is very arduous and not congenial because of the contractual system, which is a basic salary and performance fees. This is actor Robert Ralph from A Day in the Life of the National Theatre. From the point of view of your rest times, it is a very uncongenial place. There are no recreational facilities whatsoever. There is no television set. There is just a bar. Well, that is not the place one really wants to rest in. Similarly, in your dressing room, even if you've got a very nice dressing room to yourself and a bed, there's so much noise on the intercom, it's virtually impossible to sleep. As I discovered on my tour, things are never quite as glamorous as one imagines. This is one of the dressing room blocks, of which there are four. 
and the orange doors to uh, our left are the dressing rooms. They're all the dressing rooms. The dressing room block is really like the core of, of the building. Now, Dennis Lasden took into consideration that we have actors in this building rehearsing up to sometimes six hours a day and then going on to do a performance in the evening. And he thought as far as their sanity was concerned, it'd be rather nice if they could go back to their dressing room, open a window and get a bit of fresh air or a bit of sunshine. So that's why he's built the dressing room blocks, of which there's four floors of it, um, round this corridor. Room 301. Uh, a single bed, telephone, kettle, somewhere for actors to rest or relax between a matinee and an evening performance. Right. The window at the back of the dressing room looks out onto... It's the air conditioning unit, so it is deeply unattractive. Now, this has been, to put it mildly, a, a bone of contention with actors ever since the building opened. But um, they serve their purpose. They do. Like everything else, there's never been enough. The accommodation was, however, democratic in design. And I gathered um, from Ken McIntosh that uh, he had helped to design the dressing rooms with Sir Lawrence on the principle that they would all be the same sort of style, all having the same equipment. Each of them, even if you were a member of the chorus, you would have your own hidey hole with a dressing table, mirror. Ken McIntosh, incidentally, was a much-loved actor and senior staff director at the theatre for decades. Signs pointing us towards dressing rooms and uh, the Olivier stage left. There was a lovely story of, of when we first opened. An actor had to come off stage and made a quick change from a suit into pyjamas. So he went back to his dressing room, changed, then he went down to the end of the corridor to go back on the stage. Now, he should have turned left. Well, in fact, he turned right. The door shut behind him. Now, in those days, he needed a pass key to get through. Now it's a combination lock. So he found himself locked out in his pyjamas, and he had to make an entrance onto the stage. So he knocked at the nearest door, which turned out to be the VIP room. People dressed in their, in their bow ties and ladies with their long dresses and everything. And he tried desperately to convince them that he was not a stage-struck escapee from St Thomas's Hospital down the road, but could they please get him on stage as quick as possible? I don't think anybody has made that sort of mistake again. And they did get him on stage in time, so I'm told. The rooms for musicians are simply bare. They're completely different. They were just spaces. Tannoy speaker mounted yes, on the wall yes. with channel select buttons and volume control. And Rosie, what would actors or musicians be able to hear on those channels? Well, they can hear their own show. They can tune in. Well, they can tune into any theatre, but preferably you tune into the theatre that you're playing in to listen to your performance. And the danger of uh, listening into the show that you're not in was mm. very much demonstrated in 1977 when Sir John Gielgud was appearing in the title role of Julius Caesar and the actors awaiting the Emperor's entrance on stage and the Olivier waited and waited and waited and eventually, very, very late, Sir John rushed on stage and it transpired that he had been uh, in his dressing room between scenes. He had the tannoy on, but he was tuned into Bedroom Farce, <laughs> the Alan Akebourne comedy, and was so enjoying himself listening to that uh, that he missed his cue. So there is a great logic to having a tannoy in each dressing room, but there is a peril to perhaps allowing uh, actors to tune in, not just to their own show. Absolutely, yes, quite right.
Roman army moves through this island. A ship of horror, smashing down the woods and farms. Let's go to 1980. What are we waiting for? I hoped it would be a, a tremendous piece of theatre. Hey, hey! And I, 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 I had no idea it would cause such a fuss. Playwright Howard Brenton recalling a play which contained a scene that would spark a trial at the Old Bailey. The Romans in Britain took its title from a poster pinned up in Brenton's primary school classroom. The much more adult action of Brenton's play included a male rape, which hit the headlines. Director Michael Bogdanov explained when he talked to Chris Ledyard for Radio 4's In Living Memory. Oh, what a gay play. <laughs> this is White House in the Norman Orgy. This woman's director, Face Old Bailey Trial. This one with just me, rape play director. There were three actors who, in that scene who were naked. And from the very first day we threw the scene on the floor, that's, you know, in, in, improvising it, the boys took their clothes off and we worked properly. We were in rehearsal room one, one day and the, the guys were painting the roof. And we looked up and there was this painter and he was looking down, absolutely amazed, and he's, but he was still painting and his, his brush was, was putting white streaks all over the window. The victim of the onstage rape, a druid called Marban, was played by Greg Hicks. I spoke to him about how long it took to find someone to take this role when I was researching the production. When I got cast in The Romans in Britain, I think I was playing Soldier Six or something. Mm. And then Michael Bogdanov would phone consistently every other day saying, Greg, I know I offered you Soldier 6 last Tuesday, but um, it's changed now, so would you like to play... And by the time we got about the fifth call, I'd moved from Soldier 6 to this prolific part. I'd had a very solid and traditional build-up of roles until I got to the Romans in Britain. You know, things like a schnitzler play or As You Like It or a Tolstoy play, which I did with Sir Ralph, and then The Double Dealer, you know, these wonderful pieces of work. And then this thing appeared. So for me, it was, you know, I, I was swimming in the Atlantic and then suddenly I was thrown up the Amazon in this strange water that wasn't usually flowing through this building. You know, nudity and sodomy and lefty politics and all that. And uh, we rehearsed entirely naked, so I'd find myself coming in the morning, taking all my clothes and putting a pencil behind my ear, <laughs> wandering around this grip. And the, the rumours around the building were phenomenal. So much so that eventually Michael Bogdan decided to invite the entire building, and I mean people who worked in a car park, a canteen, to come to rehearsal room, whatever it was. He got a barrel of beer, <laughs> a lot of paper cups, uh, and he, he invited everybody to come and watch a run-through. And at the end of that run-through, which actually was very exposing because we weren't on the stage, we were in the room, uh, Peter sort of, you know, glided up to me, you know, in the way that Peter does glide up to you and says, uh, very, very good, well done. And, but I do have to warn you, there will be trouble. <laughs> it's this, the 1968 Theatres Act, which defines obscenity on the stage. Private prosecutions are not possible under the Act. A case could only be brought if the Attorney General decided that a play might deprave or corrupt. There have been no successful prosecutions under the Act since 1968, when it was passed, of plays generally regarded as serious literature. But 
the Director of Public Prosecutions is sending officers in to investigate this play. I have with me Mrs Mary Whitehouse, who originally brought the first complaint against the Romans in Britain. Mrs Whitehouse, why did you complain about the Romans in Britain when you haven't seen it? Uh, it was perfectly obvious from all the comment, quite specific and detailed comment, which was made uh, in every paper uh, about this play, that there were grounds there for the police to take a look at it and see whether, in fact, it did offend against the Theatres Act. And so that is precisely what we did. And the decision whether or not action is taken, at the moment at any rate, is in the hands of the uh, Director of Public Prosecution. Why didn't you go to see it? Oh, I, <laughs> I've got far too much respect for my own mind. I wouldn't dream of going to see it. Writer Howard Brenton. The Vice Squad came down three times during the run to see the play, and each time they said, there is nothing to prosecute. And then it all went quiet. And then one day we saw the show, which was getting rather good, and the houses were building, and you felt, right, we're through all the worst. And Michael was called down to the stage door, and he was handed an envelope by a man he didn't know. There was a call from saying that somebody see me at the stage door. So I went down, and there's this fella, and he's sort of smiling. And I thought, oh, this is somebody, you know, a fan. <laughs> he wants my autograph. And he said, I said, I'd like to give you this. You know, quite jolly. And he gave me an envelope. I said, oh, thank you. And, and then and he said, goodbye, and off he went. And I, mean, I opened it up. It was a summons. <laughs> and I'd accepted it. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was how they got me. In fact, Bogdanov was not charged under the 1968 Theatres Act. I was charged under the 1956 Sexual Offences Act with creating an act of gross obscenity and I was considered to be the perpetrator of the act because I was the pimp. I was the person who'd arranged the, the picture, as it were. I'd arranged the act between the two actors <laughs> and therefore I was the one who had to be prosecuted. A trial which could have far-reaching implications for modern theatre has started at the Old Bailey. This afternoon, the first witness for the prosecution gave evidence. Mr Graham Ross-Corns, who's Mary Whitehouse's solicitor, described what he saw when he went to a performance of the play. The problem for Mrs Whitehouse was that Ross-Corns had not seen what he thought he'd seen. He mistook an actor's thumb for a male member. Arts correspondent Jerry Forsey was in court. Three days into the trial, BBC News reported... Counsel for the prosecution, Mr Ian Kennedy, rose to say that he had decided, with Mrs Whitehouse's ready agreement, not to go on, even though the jury had already heard the prosecution's case and the judge had ruled that there was a case to answer. Mr Kennedy said the responsibility was his and he gave his reasons. The prosecution had never supposed that Mr Bogdanov intended to flout the law. He was an honourable man who had not been moved by any immoral motives. A conviction would greatly damage both his private and professional life. Now the scene is like another theatre scene. No. 30 years on, it's just drama. Another day. Another scene and a new play about classical music, which might not sound like a recipe for controversy, but it was. I don't believe it. 
I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It was a massive hit in London and on Broadway. It was made into a film which won eight Academy Awards, and yet Peter Schaffer's Amadeus managed to upset one very prominent lady. It's very funny. It's a music... Oh, my honour, Majesty. There's nothing offensive in it. Not Her Majesty, but the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. She saw Amadeus, but after the performance berated its director, Peter Hall. How dare he use taxpayers' money to stage a drama in which Mozart, played by Simon Callow, uttered disgusting four-letter words. Andy Wandy had a fit, she her stays and made them spit. <laughs> Thatcher told Hall that the genius who had written such sublime music could not possibly have used such foul language, a criticism Hall addressed on Round Midnight. There's been quite a lot of talk about um, Mozart being foul-mouthed and scatological. Well, he was. All the rude remarks in the play, the four-letter words he announces, with terrific good humour and, and animal high spirits, are actually from his letters. There's not one invented line. So I don't know why yes. all the Mozart lovers reach for their smelling salts. Hall even sent a copy of Mozart's correspondence to 10 Downing Street. He didn't get a reply. Amadeus created a ruckus with a sometimes low take on high art. Three years later, critics wondered whether Guys and Dolls was too lowbrow for a national institution. The National Theatre staging a Broadway musical was as unseemly as a tipsy nun doing the can-can, claimed one newspaper. Neither Richard Eyre, director of Guys and Dolls, nor Peter Hall wanted to take the credit. It's not my idea. The idea goes all the way back to Lord Olivier and Kenneth Tynan's days at the National when they thought of doing a musical and thought that Guys and Dolls was the best. Olivier had wanted to do Guys and Dolls and had gone as far as setting up the production he was going to play Nathan Detroit. And then it had fallen through because he got ill. One of the few people who saw Olivier as low-rent gambler Nathan in rehearsal was Geraldine McEwen, who was set to play Nathan's fiancée, Adelaide. It was so sort of tired and casual and laid back. Oh, I don't know, it was very sort of shrugged off the way he played it, and you could see the whole characterization through his playing of the song. I mean, I'd have loved to have played Adelaide to his Nathan Detroit. Richard Eyre knew that he would be working in the shadow of the abandoned Laurence Olivier production. This was a massive kind of history. So Peter said, it's been scraped around the National Theatre for many years. Why don't you have a go? Before the Guys and Dolls musicians, please sign at the stage door, please. For the foreign Guys and Dolls musicians, please sign at the stage door. So although audiences never saw Olivier in Guys and Dolls, they did see guys and dolls in the Olivier. Ladies and gentlemen, will you take your seats, please, in the Olivier Theatre? The performance of guys and dolls will commence in three minutes. The performance of guys and dolls will commence in three minutes. Olivier Theatre, Olivier Theatre, with Tony Britton and the guys and dolls musicians, stand by immediately. Tony Britton and the guys and dolls. Richard Eyre was taking a gamble on finding a cast who could act, play comedy, sing, and dance. I'm picking Valentine, cos I'm the morning line. The guy has got him figured at five to nine. But that's the best step 
I started off with the prescription that it should be wonderfully acted and wonderfully sung, and we were going to have to make compromises, trade-offs in some directions. Enough people who could dance in order to be able to do the dance numbers up to a degree of satisfaction. In my head, I, I knew all the steps, did all the counting and everything, but uh, like you'd think you were doing it right and your feet had gone sloppy on you again. I mean, everybody was going one way and you was going the other way, you know. Why it's good old reliable We had to have people with a, a very good sense of pitch, obviously. I mean, this is excluding the bona fide singers. Bob Hoskins, as Nathan, was betting on being able to master the dancing. Ian Charlson, fresh, or should that be breathless, from sprinting through chariots of fire, felt that playing high roller Sky Masterson was a risk. I've got a tenor voice. It's not a, uh, an Italian tenor voice, it's not a strong tenor voice, it's an Irish lyrical tenor. When I sing, therefore, it presents, a, I would think, anyway, a slightly softer image than, than I would wish to portray Sky. Yeah. So somehow I have to marry that with the kind of guy that Sky would be, you know, without making him seem like Kenneth McCallum. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kenneth McKellar, the kilt-wearing classical tenor, noted for his nostalgia-laced New Year's Eve shows in the 50s and 60s. I've never been in love before Now all at once it's you It's you In a cast of 27, Julie Covington as Sarah and Julia McKenzie as Adelaide were the only musical theatre specialists. But McKenzie's opening week was marred by illness. It's one of those chest virus infections. It's been terribly difficult to, um, to lose. It's been a little more than I could actually cope with. I mean, I wouldn't have minded just a, a little nasal cold for Adelaide, but it's actually gone on the chest, so it's been a little difficult. I haven't had much choice with the voice. It's been all out or all in. Fortuitously, her ailment was already in the script. It says of this book, the average unmarried female, basically insecure, oh, due to some long frustration, may react with psychosomatic symptoms, difficult to endure, affecting the upper respiratory tract. In other words, just from waiting around for that play little bad to go, a poison can develop a cold. I'm a lawyer and sue me, sue me. What can you do me? I love you. Give a holler and hate me, hate me. Go ahead, hate me. I love you. The best years of my life, I was a fool to give to you. All right, all 
I'm just an old good Nick. All right, already. It's true, so new, so sue me, sue me, sue me. Well, it's true, me. I love you. I've got a lot of feed lines. I don't have any of the laugh lines. Plus, trying to establish Sarah's character. Julie Covington played Sarah Brown, the save-a-soul missionary who falls in love with Skye. I want her to be good without being prissy. She's kind of too good to be true. Ask me how do I feel Ask me now that we're cosy and clinging Well, sir, all I can say is if I were a bell I'd be Guys and Dolls played to full houses and standing ovations. As Robert Cushman, then drama critic at The Observer, noted, The National was giving previous productions a run for their money. Well, not only was Guys and Dolls a success on its first night in New York, it's been one ever since on both sides of the Atlantic. Audiences, those who can get in, are currently responding with enormous enthusiasm to a production at Britain's National Theatre. Nobody has been churlish enough to ask just why The National is staging an American musical, but if anyone did, Sir Peter Hall, director of The National, would, as usual, have the answer. Because it's a masterpiece. All the people all said sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. People all said sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. If we really did plays that nobody had heard of all the time, we'd have an audience that nobody could see. <laughs> sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. They call you Lady Luck But there is room for doubt At times you have a very unladylike way of running out Standby 27 to 30, please, Brad. OP flies, standby 1 and 2, please. Behind the scenes, stagehands often face anxious moments as they move pieces of scenery, or flats. In Guys and Dolls, the scene change from a sewer to an off-Broadway street was especially tricky. Deputy stage manager, Angela Bissett. We've always worried about the sewer flat not going out. And if it doesn't, then we can't really get round it because we can't do any more without getting it off the stage. And one night that happened, we tried for approximately a minute with the band vamping to try and get it out, but there wasn't any way to do it. And eventually Bob Hoskins came on stage, which was quite a good idea, and explained what had happened. And the band, God bless them, kept on playing, which was wonderful. I mean, most of the audience just stayed in and listened to the band. They just jammed. It was great. And I suppose it was about 10 minutes before 
the man who's on the power flying transferred to a master control. And, uh, and the flat went out. Thanks the Lord. One footnote to the production. There was romance on stage and in the wings, courtesy of Imelda Staunton and Jim Carter, now best known as Carson the Butler in Downton Abbey. I can't sing, I've got a bass voice, but I've only got one singing note. So, and I've got the only non-singing role, which is Big Julie from Chicago, who's a comedy frightening gangster. But the real hook to it was uh, Richard Eyre asked me if I'd be prepared to be uh, a drag queen in the big Havana dance sequence in the middle. And that was just too tempting to pass up. So there was a, a six foot four big ugly girl dancing around in Havana with fishnet tights. And uh, I mean, I think it's a shame the audience don't ever really see backstage because when I come on as Big Julie the gangster, underdressed under my gangster costume, I've got fishnet tights, a, a garter, and long black satin gloves because I've got sort of a two minute sex change as soon as I go off. Jim Carter and Imelda Staunton ended up married. When Guys and Dolls finally left the South Bank in September 1984, it had outlasted no fewer than 13 other Olivier productions. It delighted nearly half a million people, making it by far the biggest hit of the Nationals' first 20 years. As the problems with the Guys and Dolls sewer flat proved, things can always go wrong during a live performance, never more so than on Alan Akebourne's Way Upstream, a dark comedy about a boating holiday. Way upstream transformed the Littleton stage into a river and was engulfed by a sea of troubles, including flooding, a jammed riverbank, and bacteria in the onstage water. This was all dryly noted by stage manager Ernest Hall in his nightly show reports. Friday, 27th August, 1982. Act two grinds to a halt twice because of a faulty pivot winch. Up comes the safety curtain an underprepared sound technician causes the actors to miss several cues. The curtain call is improvised and ragged. Total chaos and an acutely distressing experience. Tuesday, 8th of March, 1983. A sound engineer cues the wrong effect from an atmosphere cassette, shrieking birds. And for a moment, the atmosphere is more Hitchcock than Akebourne. Like the Littleton, the Olivier was equipped with state-of-the-art hydraulic machinery. 
The Olivier's giant drum revolve was designed to spin sets and actors in and out of the audience's view from beneath the stage, but it didn't work for the first 10 years. Back in 1977, Maximilian Schell's production of Tales from the Vienna Woods used the revolve to reveal sets evoking 1930s Austria, but it kept breaking down, and at one interrupted performance, Schell leapt on stage to apologize. The stage manager's report notes, the only complaints were from audience members saying they couldn't hear clearly when the director got up to explain the disruption. When the drum revolve finally worked as intended, it became a thrilling asset for action-packed Olivier productions. One in particular featured a rodent played by one of Britain's best-loved actors. I've got false ears on and I twitch a lot and I've got a five-foot tail, so I'm hoping that the, uh, the audience will accept me as a rat. The mole had been working very hard all the morning, spring cleaning his little home. First with brooms, then with dusters, then on ladders and steps and chairs, with a brush and a pail of whitewash, till he had dust in his throat and eyes, and splashes of whitewash all over his black fur, and an aching back and weary arms. Spring was moving in the air above and in the earth below and around him, penetrating even his dark and lowly little house with its spirit of divine discontent and longing. It was small wonder then that he suddenly flung down his brush on the floor, said bother and oh blow, and also hang spring cleaning, and bolted out of the house without even waiting to put on his coat. In 1989, listeners to Radio 4 were enchanted by Alan Bennett reading Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows. Just over a year later, his own adaptation was on stage as a Christmas treat in the Olivier Theatre. So, this is a river. My dear Mole, if I may correct you, not a river, the river. And you really live by the river. What a jolly life. By it and with it and on it and in it. It's my world and I don't want any other. It, obviously, it could be twee. It could be fairly sick-making. In Alan's hands, I don't think it is at all. The way Alan is able to present the book uh, gives it the sharp edge that makes it acceptable for production performance nowadays. That's Willow's director, Nicholas Heitner, hinting at Alan Bennett's modern take on Edwardian values. The Wild Wooders were no longer yobbish members of the proletariat, but weaselly property speculators and estate agents determined to convert Toad Hall into a leisure centre. But this was never meant to be hard-hitting drama, and Jeremy Sams composed music and songs of great charm. First of all, the sort of music I was after was something that set the, the period of the whole piece, which isn't in any way specific, but is vaguely before the First War, that great time which is always referred to as the prelapsarian age when everything was lovely and butter tasted beautiful and and everyone laid around with time on their hands and sort of English pastoral but I tried to get a lot of the sort of melodies you have like on children's hour yearningly 
sad and nostalgic. So, for example, I didn't want to go too much to Delius, which is all this sort of... All that sort of stuff, very soupy. Mine is more like someone like Butterworth. So, tunes are very simple and defined and harmony quite static, like this. This is a riverbank song. sort of like that. there's another tune which is this is the opening So it's all very, um, very, very sort of nostalgic and simple. Um, the edge is given to it with the fact it's played by rabbits on stage. It was a delight. Paul Allen on Radio 4's Kaleidoscope agreed. With its band, its multiplicity of woodland scenes, its stage endlessly peopled by little groups of small furry creatures, The Wind in the Willows is Nicholas Heitner's biggest organisational job since Miss Saigon. The glory is, and I touch wood as I say this, that it all seems to be working. Even the great drum of the Olivia stage, which has led to so many nervous breakdowns. It revolves and rises or falls to reveal a new vista or yet another little home. And outside the drum lies a rim, which also revolves and represents either the open road when Toad is on the loose or Rat's beloved homeland. The play at the National is a feast of colour and light. We get to see Toad's caravan, his stolen vintage car, the train on which he escapes from prison and the marvellous underground homes in the giant tree roots of Rat, Badger and Mole. What we don't get is actors kitted out to impersonate real animals. Designer Mark Thompson. I personally loathe furry costumes and masks. There's nothing more hateful than fun fur. I mean, what's the point of employing Richard Briars and Griffiths Jones if you're going to cover their faces? We know they aren't animals, and I think it's much wishier and more charming to bring out an animal aspect in them in a human way. Badger's got a, a, a Diaghilev hairdo and he's got a big dressing gown that's sort of the colours and Molly's got uh, a chenille blazer and it's cut very high so it looks as though he doesn't have a neck and his trousers are big and baggy and they're short and he's got pink socks so it's that sort of thing. Kaleidoscope spoke to stage crew and some special members of the Willows cast. I play the part of Tommy the Hedgehog and our costume is material that looks like prickles and our wig we have spikes and they look really sharp. I play the part of a rabbit and just just hop round really but we weren't allowed to put our paws our hands up to our chest because rabbits don't actually do that. And in rehearsal I heard Nicholas Heitner utter the memorable directorial line field mice we shall have to do some work on holding our tails. In fact, movement has been the key to the playing of all the half-human, half-animal characters and serious research. Movement director Jane Gibson took some of the cast to the zoo. We had a rather disappointing time because the weasel was dead and uh, the ferrets were asleep but we managed to get them woken up and they were a rather charming couple. And when we came back to see the ferrets again, they were in hospital. 
apparently they were ill. We saw some good toads. There are a lot of toads at the zoo. The toads spend much more time out of the water, which is useful for us, and they're more warty, and um, actually they don't jump. It's the frogs that jump, toads run. They have a very, very sort of self-satisfied look about them. They can be sitting on a branch and really looking pleased with life and pleased with themselves, and they have this sort of ability to puff up. Boop, boop. We also, which was marvellous, we had a woman come from up north who brought a ferret and a rabbit with her. And uh, she wouldn't bring a weasel because apparently they're completely manic and rush all over the place and disappear. You know, they're great escapees. But we had a lovely ferret and a rabbit, which she didn't show us at the same time because the ferret would eat the rabbit. And that was very useful. For example, you could see that the ferret likes to take his food and go away into a corner and put it down, then go back and get another one, take it to another corner. So things like that, there's a big banquet scene at the end of Wind in the Willows where all the weasels are having a great old time in Toad Hall. We can use that as people who kind of take a buffet plate of food and take it off into a corner and then come back for a bit more. So there are things you can directly take in. They're very violent. They have very sharp teeth and they um, pinpoint their prey with their eyes and then they go for them. So they move in very straight lines and they know exactly where they're going. They're very direct in movement. Whereas, for example, the rabbits are very indirect because you notice that rabbits don't quite know where they're going. <laughs> they sort of lollop a bit over here, then they lollop a bit over there. And they don't have this directness because, of course, a rabbit is eaten. So there's this difference in the play with those who are eaten and those who eat. The bountiful resources for actors and production staff at the National are the envy of less well-off British theatres. There was a sanctioned overspend on the Willows' budget, which was rewarded with not just one, but four sold-out seasons. But the theatre had yet to perfect its fundraising tactics. The sponsorship campaign for Willows began with staff randomly contacting businesses with Badger in their name. How do you get on with Ratty? Oh, very well. We're great friends. Uh, keep you in order, does he? Well... Right way and a wrong way. <laughs> a bit, but I don't mind. Ah, that's because you're like me, you see down to earth. The trouble with Ratty is that he can sometimes get a bit, uh, well, <laughs> ratty. <laughs> <laughs> that's the late Michael Bryant, who, amongst his many National Theatre roles, played Badger in The Wind in the Willows. There's more about Michael in the National Theatre at 50, with me, Daniel Rosenthal, after the interval. You'll also hear a little girl with a big voice, Jane Horrocks, and a little night music with Judy Dench, as well as a story about a very brave horse. Before that, a further reminder of the extraordinary animals brought to life by the National. Richard Briers might never have played Ratty on stage if Alan Bennett had not read the part first on radio. Believe me, my young friend, there is nothing, nothing. absolutely nothing, half, half so, so much, much worth doing as messing about in boats. In them or out of them, whether you get away or you don't, or whether you never get anywhere at all, there's always something to do, you're always busy. Listen, why don't we drop down the river together, make a day of it, off we go. The National Theatre at 50 was written and presented by Daniel Rosenthal and it was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4 Extra. The producer is Tamsin Hughes.